Hi all, you're listening to At The Beam, a medical education podcast where we discuss high-yield oncology with a focus in radiation oncology. We are Trudy and Josh, and thank you for listening. All right, hi everybody. So welcome to another episode of At The Beam with Trudy and Josh. So we're accompanied today by a, a very special guest, Dr. Claire Manuel. She is a native of Wisconsin and a graduate of the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. She's an active member of the Executive Committee for the Society for Women in Radiation Oncology, and is currently a PGY3 resident in radiation oncology at Stanford University. So hi, Claire. Hi, Josh. How's it going? Good. good. Thank you for joining us. Um, So we'd like to have our listeners get to know you a little bit better. So um, do you mind just please telling us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from, where you are, and uh, where you're going? Of course. So I'm from Green Bay, Wisconsin, originally. Go Packers. Um, I completed my undergraduate training at Michigan State University and then went on to medical school at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Um, That's located in Madison, for those of you who might not know Wisconsin. Um, Currently, I'm a PGY3 at Stanford in radiation oncology and for the most part, just loving residency life. So, you know, working hard, caring for patients and, you know, working with all the amazing people here at Stanford. That's great. Yeah. So, you know, I understand that you've been doing some awesome work looking at the impacts of healthcare on uh, climate health. Mind just telling us a little bit more about um, about your work? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, So this past year, I've been a member of a group at Stanford called Greening the Clinics, uh, which is a group that champions environmental sustainability in medicine. So climate health is really a topic we're not taught often in medical school. Uh, but it was recently actually called the greatest public health threat of the 21st century by the WHO. So we have a really great team here at Stanford, as well as through the Aero Climate Health Equity Task Force that's been working to promote sustainable practices in oncology and medicine. Uh, it's it's super exciting work. Uh, it's been a great team and just a wonderful year to be a part of all of it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been really great. I've been loving reading about it and all that. Um you mind just telling us a little bit more about some of the other work that you've been uh, championing throughout residency? Oh, sure, sure. No problem. So, you know, both Greening the Clinics and the Aero Task Force and uh, Suaro have kept me quite busy, but um, really enjoying all of those things. And it's still early for me as a PGY3. So truly focusing on kind of growing my clinical knowledge and really enjoying the Bay Area as well. Lots of hiking, great outdoors, um, and of course, keeping up to speed on the NFL so that we can continue to dominate all the attendings in the department and our fantasy football league. So all those things are keeping me quite busy. Uh, Thank you so much, Claire. We're so excited that you're here. Um, so what we like to do here and at the beam is conduct a case base uh, kind of back and forth. So today we have an endometrial case that we're hoping to review. Um, I think uh, Trudy's is going to take the reins on this. All right, great. Okay, Claire, so you're seeing a 50-year-old postmenopausal woman with a one-month history of abnormal vaginal bleeding. She went through menopause 10 years ago, and her last pap was a year ago, which was normal. She has no other symptoms, and she's been using two to three pads a day recently. On exam, you notice pulled blood in the vaginal vault without any visible protruding lesions or abnormalities. So what are your next steps? I would start with a CBC, given that she's been bleeding, and also obtain a transvaginal ultrasound with an endometrial biopsy. All right, great. Um, so the CBC, it's normal. Her endometrial biopsy confirms a grade two endometrioid carcinoma. Are there any other studies we should obtain? Mm-hmm. 
While routine staging scans are not necessary in endometrial cancer, you could consider getting an MRI to better characterize the tumor origin and extent, and also consider a chest X-ray to evaluate for distant metastatic disease. If the patient has high-risk features, such as grade 3 disease, I would also consider getting a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis for full metastatic staging. And importantly, I would also make sure she's established with a gynoc in anticipation of surgery. Very good. So T2-weighted images on the MRI pelvis show an intermediate signal abnormality within the uterine fundus. There are no abnormal appearing lymph nodes, and then the chest x-ray is negative. So in patients with endometrial cancer, we generally classify into two different entities, type 1 and type 2. So Claire, can you describe these for us, please? Yes. Type 1 tumors are often thought to be linked to excess estrogen and have evolved from endometrial hyperplasia into an endometrioid carcinoma. Most endometrial cancers are type 1 and represent a more favorable disease course, given that they're lower grade and estrogen responsive. On the flip side, type 2 tumors are thought to develop from atrophic endometrium, many harbor TP53 mutations. These tumors are more aggressive and act independently of estrogen. Any tumor classified as grade 3, serous, or clear cell histology is automatically a type 2 tumor. All right, great job. Yeah, so to add on to that, the grade is determined by the percent of glandular differentiation. So a tumor with less than or equal to 5% of non-squamous or non-morular solid growth components is considered uh, grade one. And if there are greater than 50%, it's considered grade three. Anything in between is grade two. Again, if you see the word serous cell or clear cell, they're automatically considered a grade three tumor. Another way to subgroup endometrial cancers through molecular classification. So there are four buckets, pole ultramutated, microsatellite unstable, hypermutated, copy number low, and then copy number high. Prognosis and implications may vary based on subtypes. So for example, pole mutated endometrial cancers carry the most favorable prognosis, and MMRD microsatellite instable tumors may be candidates for anti-PD-1 antibody after first-line platinum chemo. So Claire, um, can you describe some common risk factors for endometrial cancer? Yeah, when thinking about risk factors, the main theme is anything that results in excess estrogen can increase a woman's risk for type 1 endometrial cancer, which encompasses about 80% of cases. Some main risk factors include obesity, nulliparity, PCOS, type 2 diabetes, and exogenous estrogen such as tamoxifen. There are a few genetic syndromes to keep in mind, such as Lynch syndrome and hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, or HNPCC, which can also increase the risk for endometrial cancer. Patients who are younger than 50 years old and have a significant family history of endometrial or colorectal cancer should be considered for genetic testing and counseling. Tumors should be tested for mismatch repair defects, and patients with a mismatch repair abnormality should also be offered genetic testing or counseling. Very good. Yeah, so back to the case, this patient, she has a type 1 endometrial cancer that appears to be confined within the uterus. What is the next step in this patient's care? She should go for surgery for a total abdominal hysterectomy and bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. It's important to understand that endometrial cancer is a surgically staged disease and that surgical staging will guide appropriate tailoring of adjuvant treatments. There are three main types of hysterectomy that are distinguished by the extent of dissection posteriorly, laterally, and inferiorly. 
the first type is a total or extrafascial hysterectomy, which is what is routinely performed for uterine cancers unless there is frank clinical cervical involvement. The second type is a modified radical hysterectomy, which removes the uterus one to two centimeters of the vaginal cuff and wide excision of the parametrial tissues midway to their attachment to the pelvic sidewall and sacrum. And finally, in a radical hysterectomy, more of the upper vagina is removed and the cardinal and uteral sacral ligaments are resected down to the pelvic sidewall and sacrum, respectively. Exactly. Yeah, so key to remember that surgery is the primary treatment for endometrial cancer unless patients are deemed medically inoperable. So she gets a total hysterectomy, sentinel lymph node dissection, and the surgeon may take peritoneal washings. Of note, peritoneal washings are typically reserved for higher-risk histologies and no longer affect phagostaging, um, but may still influence adjuvant treatment recommendations. So on surgical pathology, this patient, she is found to have a grade 2 endometrial carcinoma with 80% MMI, negative LVSI, zero of 18 lymph nodes are positive, and there's no cervical stromal involvement. Can you go over the phagostaging for us? Absolutely. Uh, Phagostaging includes... 1A, which is tumor limited to the endometrium or less than 50% of the myometrium, 1B, which is greater than 50% of the myometrium, stage 2 involves the cervical stroma, 3A invades serosa or adnexa through direct extension or metastatic deposits, and 3B invades the vagina or parametrium. Stage 3C1 involves positive pelvic lymph nodes, and stage 3C2 has positive paraaortic lymph nodes. Finally, stage 4A is invasion of the bladder and or bowel, and stage 4B uh, is patients with distant metastases. Exactly. So some quick hits. Staging of early disease confined to the uterus is determined by how much myometrium is involved. So think less than 50% is stage 1A and more than 50% is stage 1B. Any patient with clinical node-positive disease is automatically a FIGO stage 3C, which can be further subdivided into 3C1, which are pelvic lymph nodes alone, or 3C2, which include PA nodes. And this is the same for staging um, in patients with cervical cancer. So this patient, she is a FIGO stage 1B. So Claire, what are your recommendations for adjuvant treatment? In this 58-year-old patient with a FIGO stage 1B and grade 2 disease, I would recommend adjuvant vaginal cylinder brachytherapy alone, treating with 6 gray times 5 fractions, prescribing to the surface of the proximal one-third of the vagina two times a week. Yeah. So can you discuss a little bit about cylinder technique? Sure. For her first visit, I would start with a speculum exam and check to make sure her vaginal cuff is well healed. If so, I would usually aim to start her treatments at about six weeks post-op and ideally no later than 12 weeks post-op. I would then fit her for a cylinder. You want to make sure that the cylinder is of correct size and diameter for the patient, meaning that it's large enough to minimize air pockets within the vaginal canal, but also comfortable for the patient. I would simulate the patient at time of first fraction with her in a supine position, arms on the chest with the cylinder in place. No formal immobilization is needed. On the CT scan, I'm looking to make sure that the surface fits snug in the vaginal vault and that there are no air gaps. Very good. Yeah, so keep in mind there are different fractionation schema, which vary based on where you prescribe the dose to. 
but for this patient, she'll be getting six gray times five to the surface. If you're prescribing to a depth, you need to watch the vaginal surface dose, especially for women that require smaller diameter cylinders. So let's change it up and say the patient were older at 65 and she had LVSI on surgical pathology. How would that change your adjuvant treatment recommendation? So with additional high-risk features, such as older age greater than 60 and LVSI, specifically substantial LVSI, I would consider treating with external beam radiation instead of vaginal cylinder brachytherapy. Uh, for simulation, I would place vaginal cuff markers, Simher supine in a VACLOC bag with IV contrast and an empty rectum. I would obtain two scans, full and empty bladder, to help form an ITV at the time of planning. For my nodal CTV, I would use a seven millimeter brush to contour around the vessels to encompass the common iliac, external iliacs, internal iliac, and obturator lymph nodes while cropping out the bone, bowel, and muscle. For my primary CTV, I would include the vaginal cuff and at least two centimeters below caudal extent of disease in the vagina, which is usually about the proximal half to two thirds of the vagina. And then I would expand seven millimeters upon the ITV to form my PTV. Great job. So what is your prescription dose um, for the beam portion technique and your dose constraints? Mm -hmm. I would treat with IMRT 45 gray and 25 fractions to the PTV. For PTV coverage, the aim is for 95% of the volume to receive 95% of the prescribed dose. This allows 5% of the PTV to be slightly underdosed to allow for normal tissue sparing with a DMAX of 110%. For dose constraints, I would make sure the rectum V40 less than 80%, the bladder V45 is less than 35%, and the bowel V40 is less than 30%, as well as the V45 less than 195 cc's. Great. Um, and remember, in the post-op setting, patients should be receiving radiation using IMRT as it was shown to have reduced toxicity compared, compared to 3D conformal in the TIME-C trial. So let's say the patient had cervical stromal involvement on her surge path. How does this change her stage and management? So with cervical stromal involvement, she's now a FIGO stage 2, and I would treat with EBRT plus vaginal cylinder brachytherapy. It's important to remember that with any evidence of cervical stromal involvement, you need to also include the presacral nodes down to S3 and the nodal CTV. The vaginal cylinder brachy prescription is also different after EBRT. Uh, after 45 gray, I would treat with 5 gray times 3 fractions to the surface of the proximal one-third of the vagina. All right. Aside from cervical stromal involvement, when is another instance you should add vaginal cylinder brachy to external beam radiation? There's no good prospective evidence to support the use of vaginal cuff boost following pelvic EBRT, but in general, you would consider for patients with close or positive cuff margins, large or deeply invasive tumors, parametrial or vaginal involvement, or extensive LVSI. Great. And when should you add chemotherapy? So chemo should be considered for grade three tumors serous or clear cell histology, or in patients with FIGO stage 3 or 4 disease. Great. So this patient, she completes adjuvant radiation. What does her follow-up schedule look like? She should be seen by a provider, either myself or the gynonc, every three to six months for an HMP for the first two years, and then every six months for the next three years up to year five, and that's per NCCN. You can consider a CA-125 if this was initially elevated, 
otherwise, in follow-up, I'll be monitoring for late toxicities, which can include vaginal and vulvar dryness, vaginal stenosis, fistula formation, and chronic urinary or bowel bother. It's important to introduce vaginal dilators to prevent stenosis formation, which you could start at her first follow-up with you following radiotherapy. Very good. Excellent job, Claire. Um, We're so happy that you joined us on today's episode. Very lucky to have you here with us. So this concludes our episode of Endometrial Cancer. Thanks to Dr. Christine Chen at Columbia University for helping us review the case. You can find the show notes on our website at at atthebean.com. Be well and remember to always trust but verify. 